What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. Happy Monday. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead on The Exchange, 226 trading days. That's how long it took the markets to register a 5% pullback. Why some are welcoming the recent sell-off as a good sign and which two sectors are a buy if stagflation is upon us. Plus, from paper to manufacturing, to get this, the TikTok reading revolution, Dom. We're going to speak with the CEO of Barnes & Noble about why there's now a shortage of books and what that means for your Christmas shopping plans. And the winds are blowing, the headwinds, that is. A look at why Apple, Disney, and even Bond himself can't run away from major issues plaguing their stocks. But we begin with the markets. Dom Chu here to kick things off. What is there not a shortage of, Kelly? You've gone to stores just like I have. I'm seeing shelves that are not necessarily empty, but maybe sparsely stocked all over the place right now. Everything from even paper products like pre-pandemic. But anyway, we're at a market right now that did see some solid-ish upside at one point today, but now we've kind of pulled back to flat. The Dow Industrial is down about five points right now, just about flat on the session. We were up over 100 points at one point here. The S&P 500, unch. Right there, you just saw it. NASDAQ Composite up about two-tenths of 1%, the real outperformer, if that's what you want to call it, so far today. Up 23 points, 14,603, the last trade there. The strength that we are seeing on a relative basis in the market right now is coming from certain parts of the commodity and industrial complex. Material stocks in particular, if you look at some of the best performers in the S&P 500, we're talking about names like Freeport McMoran. Think copper and gold. Nucor on the steel side of things. Mosaic, nitrates and fertilizer. That company is up about 4% right now. And ES, oil and gas, diamondback energy up about 1.5%. The commodity complex, hard commodities, things you mine for, base metals, oil, gas, those are up on the session. Now, if you take a look at some of the losers because of that, if input costs rise, from hard commodities to soft commodities. Let's talk about cotton prices. They are still elevated on a relative basis. They hit a 10-year high back on Friday. As a result, many companies that use cotton as an input for their products think denim, right? Levi Strauss, that kind of company. Gap stores, the worst performer in the S&P 500 today, Kelly, off 4% right now. You can see it's still up about 10% year-to-date, but that trend has been lower, and cotton prices are part of the reason why, Kelly, we're seeing some of these companies like Levi Strauss, Gap, and other clothing manufacturers, Ralph Lauren today as well, in the red. I'll send things back over to you. You nailed it, Dom. I remember you talking about that in Rapid Fire. Yes, Levi Strauss, Denim. Abercrombie and Fitch, American Eagle. All these companies are ones I'm keeping an eye on because of copper prices Absolutely. or rotten cotton prices. Yeah, well, yes. the buttons, too. Uh, Dom, thanks <laughs> very it. much. It took 226 days for the S&P 500 to see a 5% pullback. It's one of the longest stretches in history. My next guest says this is a buying opportunity, but is also here to tell us which two sectors are a buy if we're in for a bout of stagflation. Joining me now is Alan Boomer. He's the chief investment officer at Momentum Advisors. Alan, it's great to have you back. Let's start with your thoughts overall on this market. Great. Thanks for having me and happy Indigenous Peoples Day to you today and all the viewers. Uh, So today, you know, the big uh, threat is stagflation. Stagflation is the combination of low growth and high inflation. I personally believe that this bout of inflation is transitory. It's taken a while for us to transition past it. 
We've got some immense issues in our supply chain and huge labor shortages. But I do think that in times of stagflation, there are some sectors that do well historically. So before we delve into those, tell me why you're bullish on the market overall, if you think that we could be in for a period of persistently high prices and disappointing growth. Yeah, I think overall interest rates are going higher, but they're still very low. And even as rates go higher, they will still be very, very low. I think, you know, there's a lot of pent up, you know, supply demand from the the lack of supply. Like think about all the restaurants that you go to and, you know, there's a long line and empty tables, right? As the labor shortage works its way out, and I do believe that that will happen. I just think that there's a lot of additional revenue and, and profit growth that's not been seen in the system. And that restaurant example is, you know, not to say go out and buy restaurants, but again, it's just an example of, of what will happen when we get through this labor shortage. So basically, you think we still have pent up demand. We have the normalization to look forward to and a cyclical recovery that keeps going. That said, let's talk about why you're even mentioning stagflation plays, which you think are energy and healthcare, right? Yeah, I think energy and healthcare. But one thing, energy and healthcare historically have done well during times of stagflation. But what's different this time? is that we've got a labor shortage. So while I do like those two sectors, and there's some names in those sectors I like, I like tech. And tech is kind of like a non-stagflation play. Like tech typically does not do well uh, during stagflation. But if you think about it, like the companies that are talking about having a difficult time finding employees, the companies that, that are talking about massive wage increases, it's not tech companies. It's not software engineers and the like. So even though I like healthcare and energy historically, I do think tech is well, really, especially big tech, is a place to look at right now. I, so I could I could argue the other side of that if you consider Amazon a, a tech company. I mean, this is a company that is where I mean we're seeing big wage gains in terms of what they would have paid even just a couple of years ago. Um, maybe they're having some worker shortages, as uh, just evidenced by how big their hiring announcements are. They're obviously expanding very rapidly. So why don't you think they would be affected? Well, Amazon, you know, is a tech company until you start looking at them trying to ship goods to your door, right? Then they become, you know, a regular sort of uh, industrial or retailer, right? I I look at like the the two stocks I like most within tech right now are Google and Microsoft. Mm. Uh, both Both of these companies have really, really strong revenue growth. They have pricing power. Microsoft just raised their prices and the market didn't blink. And most of their, you know, their, their employees that are, you know, the ones that they're counting on to, to deliver their business model, you know, it's engineers, it's software folks. It's not folks that, you know, are holding up, uh, you know, that are, um, you know, in, in short supply sure. right now. Yeah. No, and uh, to rattle off the factors here for the stocks that you like to own right now, high EBITDA margins, pricing power, uh, dividend payers, you don't mind. You say these are stocks the Fed won't hurt. Um, companies with low labor costs as a percentage of sales. But I also want to mention you look for ones that have fallen out of favor might be cheap. And that kind of brings us to your last pick here as well, Activision Blizzard. Yeah, Activision Blizzard had a labor issue, right? They had workers walk off the job. They, they, they've got a little bit of a scandal I always look for moments like this as a buying opportunity because you can fix labor and manage and how you manage labor. What you can't fix is is revenue growth. And that company has been growing revenue quite well. They've got some blockbuster franchises. And I think right now is a great time to buy the stock while it's down. All right. Alan, from big picture to small picture, uh, thank you so much for joining us today with your thoughts on this environment. We appreciate it. 
Great. Thanks for having me. Alan Boomer with Momentum Advisors. Meantime, Southwest is on pace for its fifth straight day of losses after canceling more than 2,000 flights since Saturday. It's a national story. Everybody's talking about it. Phil Abo is here with the very latest. Phil? Kelly, the cancellations continue today for Southwest Airlines. To date, or at least today, I should say, 365 cancellations. If you add that along with the 1,800 starting Friday and into Saturday and Sunday, you're looking at more than 2,000 cancellations. We saw scenes like this around the country all weekend, long lines, especially in those cities that have a strong concentration of Southwest flights, not only in Chicago, but also in Denver. Uh, I'm out in Las Vegas, saw a number of people out here who said they were expecting people to fly in for the Bears and Raiders game. They never made it. So for Southwest, here's what happened. Storms on Friday in Florida was the trigger event. That hit all the airlines to a certain extent, but far more impact on Southwest. There was an air traffic control staffing issue very briefly on Friday night. That is not what caused the cancellations over the weekend. What caused them on Saturday, Sunday, and into today, crew shortages for Southwest Airlines. Some of that is crews not being in the right position. Remember, this is a point-to-point system, so all it takes is for a few cancellations, and then you start to see a number of them throughout the system. This is different than the hub-and-spoke model that you see for the other major airlines. If you take a look at shares of Southwest Airlines, it expects normal flight schedule later this week. This sounds similar to what we saw with Spirit Airlines uh, earlier this year. That's because it's very similar in terms of it takes a while to get the schedule recalculated and back uh, running as it should. Southwest's uh, COO did say in an employee memo that they do plan to trim their schedule in November and December. As you take a look at the other airline stocks, remember all of the airlines, while they were initially cautious about what to expect for the holidays, Kelly, all of them are now saying they see strong demand for the holidays. So for Southwest, the challenge is not only getting through this situation that they find themselves in, but really they've got to start to build back confidence with the traveling public that they're not going to have another situation like this if there's a snowstorm in December or something happens right before the holidays because their staffing situation and the relationship between management and the pilots as well as the other unions uh, at Southwest, that has to be front and center for people to be thinking about. And that's one of the concerns that you're going to hear analysts talking about is whether or not Southwest may have more muted growth in the holidays compared to other their some of their competitors. So, Phil, what do you make of the fact that a lot of people are hearing through the grapevine that this all comes down to the vaccine mandate and pilots sort of walking off the job? Right. You know, that's both what travelers are hearing through the grapevine. It's also what people on social media of increasingly well, yeah. high political stature are talking about. How much of that is grounded in fact? Um, The union officially says that there is not a union-sanctioned sick-out, if you will, and nor is there an unofficial sick-out. Having said that, Kelly, when you see these cancellations, all it takes is a few dozen pilots or crew members who are saying, I don't feel like working today. Now, we're not saying that that officially has happened. That always is the speculation whenever you see an event like this, especially with the airlines. Um, And for Southwest, the relationship between the pilots and management I mean, it's not in a good spot, and it has not been in a good spot for a while. Uh, They're not happy that they were not consulted by management to a greater extent before the Southwest management said, okay, yeah, we're going to fall in line with everybody else and mandate vaccines by December 8th. Keep in mind, the White House has been pushing all airlines to do that, which is why we heard from Southwest and some of the other airlines last week following the lead of United. So there's no official sick out that's going on, Kelly, but 
This is what people talk about whenever you see a lot of cancellations like this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, wreaking havoc, as you said, Phil. Thank you so much, Phil Abo, as that continues for Southwest Airlines. Coming up, a special look at the nation's lost workers. Some of them are pilots. But who are they? Where are they? And how does the labor crunch threaten to add to the inflation problem? But first, nat gas prices are lowered today after breaking a six-week win streak and more than doubling since January. Where did they go next? Here's energy investor Wes Edens giving his prediction on Squawk on the Street earlier. I think longer term there will be more supply that comes on market, but energy infrastructure takes a long time to build. And so I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon. And I think it has the potential to be disruptive for a number of years. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Natural gas prices are pulling back a little bit, about 2.5%, after hitting a 13-year high last week on that global supply shortage. Prices have more than doubled since the beginning of the year. We're starting to see sporadic energy outages around the world now. And my next guest says we could see even higher nat gas prices and possibly more rationing. Joining me now is Nina Faye. She's head of North American Natural Gas at Energy Aspects. Nina, welcome. Uh, this is definitely the moment for natural gas and everybody trying to figure out what to make of it. Um, what would you say would alleviate this problem. You know, we heard Wes Edens going into the commercial break who thinks prices could be high for a couple of years. Do you share that view? Oh, yes, certainly, because we've seen that there's been a significant amount of underinvestment in the industry, especially when it's coming to production. And production is ultimately what is going to be necessary to meet demand, whether that be over the course of this winter under a much colder than normal scenario or for all of the infrastructure-led demand growth that we see coming online from both the industrial sector, whether that be steel, pet chems, or more LNG exports. Ultimately, what's going to happen this winter, though, will end up being a winter weather play. Absolutely, in terms of how much worse it gets and how much more things spike. But tell me why you think a couple of years. I mean, traditionally, nat gas has been a devastating investment because supply comes online. Here in the U.S., we're fortunate we have a lot of it. Uh, you know, producers have struggled to kind of show good returns. Investors really want them to stay disciplined and so forth. What changes that dynamic? Is it the fact that you have huge demand for liquefied shipments all around the world from places that are trying to phase out coal and Again, why don't you think that it could just be like, okay, four, six, nine months time and 
more supply comes online and then prices drop back to normal? Well, first, to be fair, if we do have a very mild winter, even something along the lines of 5% colder than normal weather, I think that we'll be having a much different conversation than the one that we're having right now. 5% milder than normal winter is going to pad U.S. inventories by about 400 BCF from the residential and commercial sector alone, and that's going to change the narrative on how much production growth we have, however, or how much production growth we need, rather. However, as we're looking out several years from now, it is, in fact, the investment that we're seeing on the export side of the market that's going to need to ensure that the U.S. market continues to have uh, enough production coming forth, whether that being from the gas-directed drill bit in areas like Appalachia and Haynesville or from associated gas plays where, frankly, U.S. gas is just the marginal molecule. Sure. And let me ask you the trillion-dollar question right now. How much of this is a result of policy choices And how much can be changed by policy choices or will we double down? So we have the big COP26 uh, summit coming up next month where nations, including the U.S., have to show up and say, "Okay, here's what we've done to meet the Paris agreements. And here's what we're doing to make make sure the energy transition is underway. But they have furious populations who now think that they've, you know, destroyed these dynamics, even while high prices may actually hasten the transition along. So, again, what policy response is likely here? Is it one that might be actually more drilling for Nat gas, more pipelines, more reliance on this bridge fuel or less because people just say, forget it, we're just going to press forward with renewables or something like that? I think ultimately that decision is going to end up being imparted by or informed about what happens in the course over the winter. So if we do see that there's substantial scarcity pricing in both the U.S. and Europe, then certainly we could see something happen in the favor of gas in terms of from a legal standpoint, for sure. Well, I don't even want to ask you about rationing, but would we only get to that point, you think, if things got a lot colder? Yes. So definitely that is on the table for the U.S. market. But in our view, that is going to require something along the lines of a 10 percent colder than normal winter weather. And for context, out of the past 10 winters, only one has actually met that threshold of cold. And that's been the 2013 to 2014 winter. Yeah, I know people, we were talking about this today, but Syracuse area, they're already protesting at the utility because nat gas prices are going to be up 30 percent from last year. So uh, a lot of this is baked in and hopefully we won't get to that point. Nina, we really appreciate you joining us to talk about the dynamics here. Thank you. Thank you. Nina Fay is with Energy Aspects. Coming up, the fallout continues for Facebook, now posting its fourth straight week of losses. While everyone's been focused on regulation, our guest says litigation is now a bigger threat, and that's bad news for shares. Why it could go the way of big tobacco and opioids. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We've given up a 200-point gain today. The Dow's lower by 35 points. We're near session lows there. The S&P's down six. The Nasdaq down just about two points. It just went negative. Let's check the sectors where materials and energy are relative outperformers. Uh, energy's not even in the green, but materials is by about six-tenths of one percent. Utilities are lagging down one percent as we keep an eye on bond yields. But remember, bond market ain't open today. Materials are benefiting from the moves in metals that we've been seeing, with aluminum hitting its highest level since the CME contract's inception in 2014. Again, the highest level in at least seven years for aluminum there. And it is up uh, quite substantially this year, up two and a half percent today. Copper in the green, palladium as well. Here are some of the movers this hour. DraftKings higher after City initiated with a buy and a $66 price target. Just about under $50 a share today with about a 3% gain. They're saying they've quickly captured a leading position in the sports betting market. And take a look at Dutch Bros. I can't believe it's not Dutch Brothers. But anyway, it's up about 13% today on a raft of initiations. Six at a buy, one at neutral. Jeffries and Piper Sandler, the most bullish on the street. All of this uh, post-IPO, that lockup has expired. Uh, The most bullish targets have about a $60 price target here. Piper likes its singular focus on coffee. The stock is now up 30% from that IPO just last month. It's around $48 a share. Jim Cramer today called uh, Dutch Bros the star of the day. If you want more of his insights, you can read all about his trades in his new newsletter, the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up by heading to cnbc.com slash investing club or by pointing your phone at that QR screen with your camera on. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Police in London say that they will no longer pursue allegations that Prince Andrew sexually assaulted an underage girl. The Metropolitan Police also saying that they will take no actions on allegations that Ghislaine Maxwell have helped traffic women for convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. A group of donors has pledged $220 million to reduce global methane emissions. It's the largest ever private commitment to the effort. Twenty donors are involved, including Bloomberg Philanthropies, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, now serves as a U.N. special envoy on climate. And the Chicago White Sox will have to wait to see if they can even up their playoff series against the Houston Astros. Game four of the American League Division Series has been postponed due to rain. The two teams will face off in Chicago tomorrow afternoon. And tonight on the news, a nuclear engineer and his wife facing espionage charges for allegedly selling secrets about nuclear-powered warships. What they face at a court hearing tomorrow. That's tonight. Kelly, I'll turn it back to you. That is a wild story, Rahel. Thank you very much. Now, how low can growth go? Disney has some earnings worries and a disappointing debut. That's all coming up in today's Headwinds edition of Rapid Fire right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's take a look at a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. A lot of headwinds today. It's that sort of unofficial version of rapid fire. Here to break down all the headlines, we welcome in Chris Crisanti from MAI Capital Management. He's the chief equity strategist, along with CNBC's very own Julia Borston and Michael Santoli to round things out. Welcome, everybody. And let's start with Goldman Sachs downgrading its GDP forecast, citing concerns on consumer spending and the longer lasting virus drag. They cut their fourth quarter growth to four and a half percent from five, uh, implying a GDP downgrade to five point. 6% on the year. And J.P. Morgan just warned that high inflation, Michael, is slowing gro- global growth. You could say on the one hand, at least this is starting to get priced in now. 
I think that you can make that argument. Um, in particular, one element of Goldman's call, which is, you know, monitoring this assumed shift next year from, for consumers from goods into services, which, uh, you know, obviously may not be seamless, but you have to expect it'll happen. And will that take uh, some of the pressure off of supply chains? You had this huge pull forward of goods demand. Uh, I do think there's an argument to be made that, you know, Goldman for next year is still above consensus in terms of overall real GDP growth for the U.S. The third quarter we know was weak, and now it's a matter of are we reaccelerating uh, into the fourth quarter. So I do think that uh, this is going to be the conversation. Fiscal drag, for one thing, whether we pass anything in Congress or not, uh, is going to be a shadow for next year. And Chris, J.P. Morgan's note was interesting because this was a global note where they said global retail sales have started to slow. We've seen, obviously, the U.S. hiring picture begin to slow, and they think that high inflation is slowing the economy. So I think that makes for kind of a, a tricky investing landscape to navigate because it's not as simple as put on the inflation trades and it's not as simple as put on the slowdown trades. I don't know if you'd use this word stagflation or if we, you know, we have to kind of see how this shakes out in the next couple months. Well, I, Kelly, I, th- I think it's sure too early to use stagflation as a word. I think third quarter will mark the low in the short term of growth and we'll see growth into the fourth quarter and growth into 2022. And don't forget with these GDP, they're pretty high. So if you get 5% GDP next year, add another 4% for inflation, that's 9% nominal growth. That'll show up in earnings. That'll make for a strong market, I believe. Quick final word, Julia. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that Goldman left its forecast for the unemployment rate unchanged, projecting that unemployment will fall to three and a half percent by the end of 2022. So really so much now just hinges on how the pandemic drags out and how people respond to it. It, Normally, we'd say three and a half unemployment sounds like a fabulous. Now it's like a problem because we just don't know fully what's going on with the labor supply. But we'll dig into all that in a moment. Let's talk about what's going on with Apple. Ensnared in the global supply chain woes as rising COVID cases in Vietnam Vietnam further exacerbate their supply chain issues. The troubles are raising concerns on hardware revenue for their flagship products, even the latest iPhone 13, with Barclays saying the company could be headed for a weaker-than-expected Q3. What do you think, Chris? Are you a buyer of Apple here? No, not really, Kelly. Uh, you know, I like almost all the other FANG stocks better. Apple is a great company, but in the short term, it's going to have rather mediocre earnings growth this year and into next. Plus, you add on top the supply chain and, you know, they're just easier ways to make money, I think, over the next year. And haven't, Mike, we learned about the importance of Vietnam first getting Nike that big downgrade and now Apple? Yes. Uh, Vietnam also, you know, Needham talking about, I mean, um, Barclays talking about Taiwan as well. I I have tremendous respect for anybody who tries to disentangle all of the supply chain effects for something as complex as Apple, tries to boil it down into, you know, unit growth for uh, for this year, this quarter, next quarter. It's never been clear to me that that has helped you get good exits or entries into the stock. True. Uh, I mean, I just feel as if it's so tough to try and, uh, you know, discern what's going on there in terms of what's embedded in the in the stock versus uh, versus what we think is going to come through units. Apple has succeeded in becoming a little bit less hit driven, becoming a little bit less about iPhone unit growth and smoothing out that upgrade process, becoming more of a holistic, you know, hey, they three and a half percent free cash flow yield. That's why you buy it. Don't worry so much about how many phones next quarter. So we'll see if that actually plays through with the stock. But uh, to me, it's been always very tough to try and dance around uh, these uh, the unit growth numbers. And we know, Julia, they had a big year last year. But, you know, you look at the uh, charts, we see the share stalling more in the last few months. 
Look, Apple, there are always these questions about whether the new iPhones are evolutionary or revolutionary. That's always going to come into play. Now, of course, you have this additional issue of the supply constraints. But I do think that Mike makes a great point here that this is a company that is really invested in building its other revenue streams, the services business is huge. And we just heard about Apple appealing that the one part of the Epic ruling that it lost, which could even delay further the, any impact there of having to give up more of those fees that it earns from the App Store. That's a great point. And again, even though they are smoothing things out and, uh, you know, Chris wants to own everything else in the big tech universe, it is a reminder that, you know, iPhone 13 demand has at least been strong enough that they're, they're struggling to keep up with it. Let's move on and talk Disney. While Disney Plus subscriber growth numbers have been holding steady in the U.S., analysts at Needham say weakness overseas could lead to disappointing earnings next month. This coupled with the slower than expected recovery in parks, cruises, and theater releases this year led the firm to revise revenue guidance lower for both the fourth quarter and the full year. Julia, they're still bullish on 2022, but, you know, some of the excitement has come out of the Disney story lately. Well, I think the reason they're still bullish on 2022 is because Bob Chapek really scared investors when he said that there's going to be lumpiness in Disney Plus additions. Now, he was very clear that over the long run, they are still going to hit their longer term targets. But over the near term, there was is going to be some lumpiness. And that hinges on a lot of different things, how they're rolling out content, etc. So I think the question is just what happens right now in the next quarter in terms of the subscriber additions? Is there was there a pull forward? Do we see that slowing? And then also, how does the theatrical business play into this? You know, Black Widow was a simultaneous release, but then the next Marvel movie was exclusively in theaters, at least for a limited period of time. So a lot of different factors at play. But Kelly, people do seem eager to go back to the parks and also to cruises. One thing that I'm going to really be listening for when Disney reports earnings is what they're seeing right now in terms of bookings for Christmas and then also spring break next year. True, true. Mike, what are you watching? Well, I mean, I think that Disney has yet to really fully digest this huge step higher in valuation that it got, not only with COVID and with the the uh, uh, launch of Disney Plus and streaming, but even with the Fox assets that it bought. It went to a huge multiple of cash flow, way higher than it ever had before. Part of it's because of all the debt. And I think this has just been a part of that process of trying to metabolize that huge bite and to maybe step down to uh, more realistic growth expectations for Disney Plus. It got credit all up front for having kind of a Netflix inside of it, Mm -hmm. and it isn't quite there financially uh, just yet. And plus, there's a multi-billion dollar operating income hole relative to 2019 levels in the parks. I mean, we assume that's going to come back, you know, soon, later, uh, to a full extent, to a slightly lesser extent. That's the argument as well, and that's one of the reasons the stock looks so expensive right now. Well, and Chris, one of my favorite, you know, party games is to ask people if they know Disney's forward PE. And I I guess since I don't actually go to any parties, this would be happening more on Twitter. But anyway, I mean, it, it, 50 is pretty high. I think we're still pretty near those levels. Would you be a buyer here? I, I actually would, Kelly. And, and you touch on something that that PE scares people away, but it's pretty artificial. So what people don't realize, is, let's say the parks are about 75 percent full if you go all over the world averages. And you think, oh, they're making 75 percent of the park profits. That's not true at all. They're making hardly any park profits because there's so much overhead cost. That next 25 percent to fill the parks will shoot up earnings, make that PE much more attractive. And I think Disney's a buy here. 
All right. Very well stated. Let's move on to our final and related topic today, which is what is going on in the theaters? Because No Time to Die, the huge installment, the latest or last, depending on what you say, in the Bond franchise, brought in an estimated $56 million in its domestic debut. Okay, it's about a year and a half later than its originally planned release. It's the fourth best debut for a Bond film and a solid showing for the pandemic area, but shy of around the $60 million people were expecting. And some mixed reactions from the theater names as well, uh, underscoring the challenge of getting people back to the bond office. So IMAX about flat today, AMC up about 50 cents. Julia, what did you think of the box office number? Well, look, I think people were expecting between, say, 55 and $65 million. This would have been in that range. But then Thursday night, the numbers were really huge for those Thursday night showings. And I think that got people really excited. And they thought the numbers were going to be huge. But the reality is that the movie was long. It was about two and a half hours long, which means they're are fewer opportunities to play it on a Friday or a Saturday night um, compared to Venom, which is closer to an hour and a half long. Um, and that set the pandemic record for an opening weekend. And the other factor is that Bond tends to appeal to older audiences, and those audiences are less likely to rush out and see something opening weekend, which means there is hope that this film will hold up particularly well in coming weeks and won't have the typical drop-off that uh, more superhero fare would see. Chris, I sort of see a knowing smile over there. Well, well, I'm laughing because Julia said it appeals to older audiences, and I just saw it last weekend, so she was clearly <laughs> right. Um, but what I would say is I think six to 12 months from now, you're going to be seeing headlines, the movies are back. And and I think that, like Mark Twain said, the demise of the movies is greatly exaggerated. So you're, and, and so, you're a buyer you know, of AMC? I, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm not sure about the theaters because that, those those economics are difficult. But I do think people will go back to the movies. In fact, I think they're itching to do that. Mike, yeah. a final word. And how much, you know, we love the AMC story for so many reasons. How yeah. much of it is even predicated on the success of the box office in the next three to six months time? Uh, almost none of it. I mean, Cinemark is your read on what the what the market thinks about the actual pacing of box office likelihood, because it is most closely tethered uh, to, I think, the, the actual revenue picture. Uh, you know, AMC, of course, it matters to the core business, but the stock has become disengaged from, you know, really the, the magnitude of what AMC's business is right now. So I would put that aside and say, you know, I don't think we're arguing about are movies coming back? Are people going to want to go back to movies or not? It's not that binary. It's just how quickly and how how many event movies are going to be bankable to the degree they were before? True. That's to me what the industry is trying to figure Cinemark, out. Cinemark, for its part, as the clean read, it's down four and a half percent today. Yeah. But my husband did say he might go see it, which would be maybe the biggest breakthrough <laughs> for the bond, uh, box office in about a decade. Uh, guys, thank you all very, very much today. We will leave it there. Mike Santoli, Julia Borson and Chris Grisanti for Rapid Fire. Coming up, companies have been vocal about the persistent labor shortage. But what about the workers? The factors keeping millions of of Americans out of the job market are next. Welcome back, everyone. We've been reporting on this labor shortage throughout the pandemic as companies struggle to fill vacancies. But Steve Leisman is here now with a look at these lost workers, those who are no longer in the jobs market, who they are, where they are, and why. Steve? Kelly, thanks. Evidence for the lost workers is everywhere. In the help wanted signs in the windows of stores closed at odd hours for lack of workers. In the inflation numbers where employees have had to bid up wages and pass on the costs. And in the jobs numbers Friday, where at least some of the weak hiring is from a lack of workers. Three classes of people stand out. Women, 
new retirees and immigrants. Of the 3.1 million fewer workers in the workforce, 63% or about 2 million are women. This is the reverse of the last recession. Women's age 20 to 34, they represent half of the lost women workers, an indication that childcare issues could be a major reason for their absence. The number of Americans 65 and over leaving the workforce each month has ratcheted up to a new level with the pandemic, and it's never returned. 145,000 Americans in this age group drop out of the labor force every month. That's up from 93,000. So do the math. It's an extra 1 million plus retirees over the past 20 months. Finally, a decline in immigration began in the Trump administration before the pandemic, increased during the pandemic, and has eased only somewhat with the Biden administration. David Dyer, from a uh, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, tells me the lack of immigrant workers is a substantial portion of the labor shortage. You're talking about cumulatively hundreds of thousands of fewer workers that the economy would have been expecting to be present but are not. Bear estimates that there are a half million lost legal immigrant workers. The unknown question is, can these lost workers be found, that is, brought back into the workforce to fill, Kelly, the 11 million open jobs? You know, and sometimes I wonder if the pandemic fast forwarded everything, Steve, like we talk about it as if it created this kind of mass dropout. But were these dropouts that were going to happen anyway? You know, the early retirements. OK, those people were going to leave at some point anyway. The female aspect to this, would they have dropped out of the labor force anyway? Some of the immigration issues, were we heading down that road anyway? I just wonder, you know, is the fact that it was all sort of sped up and happened at one time, but that it was still something that we were going to need to structurally address? Kelly, you are a student of economic cycles, and you know, and it's inherent in your question right there, that every time you get a downturn like this, it accelerates the prior cycle. You certainly had a large and growing number of retire of 65 and older Americans leaving the workforce. That accelerated. Immigration was going down for a whole bunch of political reasons. I think uh, President Trump had been reacting to the reality of the politics. That accelerated with the pandemic. As for women... I think it could go either way. There were some indication women were were steady, men were leaving the workforce. I think what we're looking at here is two factors. One is the child care issue. The second one, I think, has to do with the idea that these were low-paying service jobs. And in this market today, some women have a choice as to where they go back and at what wage. Absolutely. And those, you know, as I hear firsthand all the time, people having such a struggle finding help with that issue. So that one, I totally agree with you. Maybe the million-dollar question. A smaller segment, uh, perhaps, but still a meaningful one. I think what is about a million women, yeah. I think, are out of the workforce. Yeah. Steve, we really appreciate it, as always, looking at every aspect of this unemployment picture today. Steve Leisman reporting. Still ahead, book sales surging for the first time in decades, thanks to an unlikely source. We're going to talk to the CEO of Barnes & Noble about that. And if you're considering gifting books this holiday, I do it every year, you should buy now. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. Supply chain disruptions and a shortage of paper are claiming a new victim, books. My next guest runs the world's largest retail bookseller and says if you're planning to gift new reads this holiday, you need to order now. Not only are supplies short and demand, but uh, supplies short, I should say, but demand is at multi-year highs, thanks in part to TikTok. For more, let's welcome in James Daunt. He is the CEO of Barnes & Noble. I almost feel conflicted in doing this, James. I'm such a fan of bookshops and books that it's like... You know, we should just have disclosures. This is like, you know, you know, I could talk to you for 20 minutes. So welcome. And tell me, what is going on with BookTok and TikTok making books popular again? 
It's teenagers, largely young adults, um, engaging around books, getting excited about books. And TikTok is proving to be this amazing platform. And they're buying and reading clearly and sharing and discussing a wonderful array of books. Um, what, what's exciting to me is not just obviously that we sell books, which we like, but we're selling really good books on the back of it. It's things like Madeline Miller. It's wonderful stuff. Nice. So one thing I wonder about is the availability of e-books, which would seem to be an, a natural solution at a time when paper's a problem and, you know, the supply chain is a huge issue. What portion of sales are e-books today? And do you think that that is something that will grow or does it just not replace the experience of a physical book? It doesn't replace the experience of a physical book. It's a very nice way to read for some people, for all sorts of, uh, either it's convenient, you don't want the weight of a book, your eyesight needs the bigger font, but really, truly, people engage with physical books, and that's what we can see through TikTok. This is not, this is about covers and about enjoyment and about being in bookstores. And, and you can see I'm in a busy bookstore here with people milling around me, um, and it's, it's very exciting. So I assume prices are up and books already weren't cheap. I mean, if, if I had a major quibble, it would be that new books are so expensive. Um, where are we today on pricing and where are we on shortages? You know, when, when you say that there's a book shortage, would that tend to affect uh, very high selling books? Or I would imagine maybe ones at the margin get pushed out that might be something you think is really perfect and really special for someone, but more of a cult kind of book that just might not be available. Is, how is it playing out? I mean, to be honest, books are planned and printed well in advance. So we've got stores full of all the bestsellers and all the things you'd expect. But if there's a surprise bestseller, normally they would get them reprinted and they would come in nice and quickly. Now it's going to be a bit slower. So it's it's the thing that we don't know about that's going to be missing, not the thing that we do know about. But you're right about sort of pricing. Um, I think that um, there's been a period of, of some inflation, but... You know, at the end of the day, um, for a soft cover, um, I, I think, you know, for the enjoyment and the hours that are invested in it, it remains really compelling uh, value. And of course, books last forever. It's not just you that's going to read them. It will be your children, your friends, your neighbors. Um, these are things that will, will last forever. Sure. Um, so I think for us as retailers, it's just we need to, particularly the larger retailers, we need to give good value. So final question, as a manager, I can't imagine right now what it must be like. You have uh, supply shortages, you have uh, just issues with freight and uh, the mail, and then you have the labor. Could you just rank, as it relates to you right now going into the holidays, what is the big or the top three biggest concerns? You know, what, Just help us understand which of these is, is really bad. Well, to be honest, with us, labor is not a big problem because we have a very vocational workforce. The booksellers love their jobs and, and we don't have a problem in our stores, but we're full of good booksellers. Um, we've got now stores that are full of books. My only worry is towards the end of holiday, we may find ourselves short of some. But really, the, the extraordinary thing, as you set out with your, your piece to say, is so much more reading is happening. So many more books are being bought that actually booksellers are amongst those retailers who are finding life really very much better than we could have ever dared dream. Um, so we're, we're feeling very positive about the holiday season. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. And like you said, I think we're doing okay in the world if we have a shortage of books. James, thanks for joining us to talk about it and best of luck.
James Daunt of Barnes & Noble. Well, still ahead, the Facebook whistleblower's testimony on Capitol Hill has some calling it a big tobacco moment, but resulting regulation may not be the biggest risk to the social media giant. We'll explain what is after this. Welcome back. Shares of Facebook are down 13 percent over the past month as the fallout from the Facebook whistleblower continues. At Francis Haugen's Senate testimony, Democrat from Connecticut Richard Blumenthal said Facebook knows its products have harmed teenagers and compared the company's handling of its own research to another high-profile controversy in the 90s. This research is the very definition of a bombshell. Facebook and big tech are facing a big tobacco moment. A moment of reckoning. And just breaking in the last few minutes, the Facebook Oversight Board says they will meet with the whistleblower. So what's the biggest risk to Facebook now? Regulation from lawmakers or litigation from maybe users claiming damages? Policy analyst Blair Levin of New Street Research says it's litigation and it could lead to the public having a negative perception of the company if they don't already. He joins me now. Blair, it's great to have you. I think this is a very important piece because we talk in the marketplace all the time about whether regulation would actually hurt Facebook or could actually help it because it tends to favor the incumbents or if you break it up, that could uh, reward shareholders. Tell me what the litigation path could look like. Well, the litigation path can come from a number of different directions. There can be private attorneys who somehow figure out how to sue them on behalf of large classes of individuals. It could come from the FTC arguing that it violates basic consumer protections. It can come from state attorney generals who have a number of different laws uh, and rules. Um, but the key thing in my own analysis is that the path of litigation, um, there are a couple of things I think are important for investors to understand. Number one, uh, it's backwards looking. And so you're really focused on the harm as opposed to kind of the difficult trade-offs and policy that legislation involves. And so that'll be a kind of a daily reminder of the problems. And the second thing is when you're doing litigation, Facebook is by itself. You know, a lot of public policy is a team sport. If you're lobbying on legislation, Facebook and Google and maybe and, and a bunch of others are kind of on the same team. But when mm -hmm. it's litigation, you're by yourself. That's a really interesting point. So they'd be by themselves. It would be all about the harm. Um, and from the precedence of big tobacco, but also opioids, as you mentioned, I mean, these were yes. kind of devastating to these companies. Now, in both of those cases, no one was shedding tears for the demise of cigarettes or opioids. But in Facebook's case, I was using the Buy Nothing page last week, Blair, to get rid of some baby gear so that someone else in my neighborhood could use it. What do you think society wants in terms of if we go down the litigation path, how bad it could get for Facebook? Yeah, I think, look, the, the, the framework is similar. A large company knows that it's causing some harm. And instead of acting quickly to mitigate that harm, doesn't do so arguably. And these are just the allegations. I don't really know the truth, uh, but, but arguably acts to, in fact, accelerate the harm. So that's kind of the framework. But, of course, the facts and the damages are quite different. But I think it could be very difficult for Facebook. I think what the public wants is, number one, protect the kids. I mean, I think that was, to me, from a political perspective, the big thing that happened as compared to, like, Cambridge Analytica, where you were dampering, you were hurting democracy, but it's not clear that everybody cares about democracy. It is clear that everybody cares about kids. So I think that's the single most important thing. Then the second thing is, I think there are certain kinds of changes in behavior. 
For some, it's about transparency. For some, it's about privacy. For some, it's about uh, opening up to more competition. But I think, a, you know, the tobacco litigation is known for producing tens of billions of dollars for the states. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we're talking about those kinds of damages, but the tobacco litigation also resulted in certain kind of behavioral changes. Right. And I think a bunch of state attorney generals might achieve that much faster than the United States Congress. Well, and we've started, obviously, to see some piecemeal efforts there already, but I think you really provided a big comprehensive picture of what this could look like. Blair, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. Blair Levin of New Street Research. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.